Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. How are you? I'm, I'm doing fine. So we got the word this week on Navy home football games, no fans in the stands, uh, which you might imagine particularly season ticket holders are not too happy about. Um, and, uh, but I think we're still going to have football games. It's still unknown whether even the brigade is going to be able to, uh, to attend. They're looking for a waiver from the state of Maryland to allow the brigade to attend under the idea that they're in a bubble. Um, unlike say other Maryland schools like Towson or university of Maryland, uh, the brigade has been back for some weeks now, as we know, including the plebes have been back for a couple of months. Um, so they're petitioning the state to say that, hey, they're, they're low risk, if not zero risk, because they have been in a bubble. We intend to just do bu- bubble preservation between the yard and over to the stadium and back again. But even that's not uh, a given. So it could just be football on TV which I guess is better than no football. Um, Verified that the Army-Navy game is, in fact, they intend to play it in Philadelphia. I think we've discussed in a previous episode that Philadelphia has not allowed any other permits for public events, but those who have existing permits, they're allowing to go on. So that means the Philadelphia Eagles and the Army-Navy game particularly. So um, those are some developments. Bill, for your class, no tailgaters. Tailgaters are verboten this year. That property is going to be off limits. It's owned by the Athletic Association. So, you know, in terms of the rights of fall, along with everything else that's uh, challenging these days, here goes uh, the normal life around Annapolis on home football game weekends. Yeah, so Ward, you're on the chain gang. Your class is, uh, you do the chain gang. So what are you hearing about the schedule? Will there be a full schedule or is there just going to be half as many games what what are you hearing so um they have all the conference games scheduled um within the american athletic conference and they also are playing byu on the home opener on september 7th which is the monday of labor day nighttime game that's going to be a primetime game on espn um and then of course army navy at the end of the season. And then I don't know what bowl, what the bowl season is going to look like. Right. Particularly if the other conferences like the big 10 or whatever are not playing, but they will have, and I don't know what that equals in terms of number of games, uh, but they're planning on playing six home games uh, this year and then whatever away games they have. So I'm sure X will equal 12, right? 11 or 12. Um, So, You know, again, I think the only thing that'll be irregular is they may be playing in front of no fans, like Major League Baseball or the NHL, and so, you know. All right, a couple things for the Naval Institute. The um, September issue of Proceedings went to the press uh, last week, so that should be showing up in our listeners' uh, mailboxes uh, right around September first. Uh, the focus, as always, with September is uh, naval aviation. This year, it's a focus kind of on uh, naval aviation training, which is in line with the uh, Tailhook Association's theme for this year's uh, virtual hook. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Um, And then uh, our conferences and events team is planning the next few 
big conferences that the Naval Institute is running. We've got West coming up in mid-February. That's being planned both as an in-person event because we're hopeful that we'll be able to do that in San Diego as usual. Uh, but it, we've got the ability to quickly audible to a hybrid or virtual you know, online event for West. Our uh, history conference with the Naval Academy in mid-October will be a uh, virtual-only uh, event this year. And then we've got uh, working on a plan for a Coast Guard Academy event that will be also a virtual event. And the uh, uh, intended guest for that one is uh, General Marty Dempsey, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So uh, that's a lot of stuff being worked. And uh, our, our conferences and events team is planning so many of these events that, that uh, would have been in person, you know, now being done virtually, or they're having to plan them as sort of a hybrid with the ability to go back and forth, depending on what the, uh, the COVID-19 environment is a month, two months, six months from now. So lots, uh, you know, lots of flexibility being built into the schedule right now. And speaking of flexibility and virtual environments, uh, everybody will remember or, or loyal listeners of the show will remember that we were live from Reno during Tailhook last year. We had a great time. We did what? Six interviews out there. Um, yeah. it was a great, great time. And, uh, as everybody else, and as you just mentioned for our team, the Tailhook uh, team is doing Hook 20 virtually, um, and so we are in partnership with them doing the same thing we did at the end of the school year, thing we called open access. So if you're a member of the Tailhook Association, um, you will be able to have courtesy access for 30 days for the month of September, which is the Proceedings Aviation theme issue, as part of Virtual Hook. So look for the follow-on information at the tailhook site, which is tailhook.net. And also we'll have a landing page uh, at usni.org for that. So if you're a tailhook member who listens to the show and you're not already a member of the Naval Institute, here's your opportunity to uh, explore the benefits of membership specifically um, not to mention behind the paywall access to proceedings and Naval history content but also the digital archives, every issue of proceedings from 1874 till now, and also book discounts. And we're aggregating our aviation titles specifically for the tailhook audience. So look forward to that. And then we'll be doing a similar thing as long as we're in this virtual environment with uh, the sub league, with the Navy league, with modern day Marine and Marine Corps association, all the organizations we normally uh, have a booth at their convention. We'll be doing a virtual booth, as it were, and doing this open access opportunity going forward. So uh, we're pretty excited about that. We we had great success and a lot of learnings with open access. Um, it was really predicated on giving students access to the archives is the principal reason we did that. Um, and we've had a lot of learnings and, and a lot of folks that didn't realize the full value of membership were made to realize it after they took advantage of open access. So that's, that's kind of a win-win. All right, let's get to our guest because we have an incredibly exciting guest today. Joining us from her home in Ohio today is Dr. Catherine Sullivan, a former NASA astronaut who did three space shuttle missions. And she went on later to be the director of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Dr. Sullivan, welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Bill. So Dr. Sullivan is an American geologist, a former NASA astronaut, a crew member on three space shuttle missions 
She was the first American woman to walk in space, October 11th, 1984. On June 7, 2020, she became the first woman to dive to the Challenger Deep in the Mariana Trench. And I have a six-year-old who um, has followed our, our discussions with Don Walsh um, and also with Victor Vescovo. And so she wanted to ask you, which was your favorite experience, going into outer space or going deep into the world ocean? Uh, well, I'm really lucky that I didn't have to make that choice because they're both spectacular, uh, exotic, and unique opportunities. Um, but, but they're just, they're really different in so many ways. Uh, for starters, I mean, I was a major part of the crew on my shuttle flight, so you're very different set of responsibility than going along with Victor uh, in the limiting factor to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. I'm someone who likes to be part of making things happen, not just a spectator. So in a sense, I, I liked the, you know, the greater technical training, the you know, full immersion in the shuttle and how it works and how to make everything that we had aboard, all the experiments and satellites, how to make all that work is right up my alley. I love to geek out on that stuff. But I started my life as an oceanographer, and so to get to see firsthand with my own eyes uh, this most exotic location, the, the bottom of the, one of the deep sea trenches, uh, and the deepest one at that, that, that was really quite spectacular. So, you know, the dive was kind of much more of a, a touristy kind of experience, uh, since it's a single pilot sub, and, and Victor was the pilot, uh, but fascinating to see such a deep living environment as the bottom of the Marianas Trench. So have you done the math? I'm sure you have for how, how deep you were to how high you were. What's that number? I have done it. I've got it written down somewhere and it's not right in front of me, but it's, um, we're 334 nautical miles above the earth on uh, the Hubble space telescope deployment mission. That's about the highest the shuttle ever went. Uh, and um, you know, seven kilometers is seven miles down, 11,000 meters down, roughly in the uh, Marianas Trench. I think it I think it came out to 526 kilometers top to bottom. So that's got to be a record of some sort, right? Well, uh, funny you should say that. The Guinness World Record folks uh, are in process on three different uh, records based on the dive. One being the first person or the person of greatest vertical extent the world's most vertical person because of that span from the Hubble altitude to the bottom of the trench. Uh, the first person to both walk in space and reach the deepest point on the planet and the first woman to the, to reach the bottom of the Marianas trench. I personally like the most vertical person in the world title best. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's bad. Most vertical I like person. That. I like it. So in 1978, you were selected uh, to be part of the astronaut cadre at NASA. You were you were in that first cadre that had women. What was that like? Well, it was a pretty interesting uh, experience to parachute straight out of graduate school into uh, that unique of an environment. Uh, you know, high performance, high challenge, uh, you know, very flashy kind of job. Uh, it's kind of crazy that my first full-time job was astronaut. Um, but it and it was a bit like joining uh, a military squadron. I mean, the NASA astronaut corps culture really is an outgrowth of, of naval aviation and, and Air Force aviation practices and styles and manners. Uh, a lot of that was very new to me. The ocean world has, has its own ins and outs and cultures, but uh, this was this was a step above. Um, 
I was a good thing there were six of us, I think. I think NASA was wise to not just bring you know, one or two women or one or two people of color in in that class, but uh, it bring bring a new dimension to a group with enough numbers that there's a little bit of a, a camaraderie that can develop among the, the strange people who have joined the major group. Um, but it was exhilarating. It was you know, rapid, rapid fire learning for <laughs> 10 consecutive years, but um, the kind of supercharged graduate education that you can only dream of uh, was delivered to us really by the best, best talents and best minds in the country. Were you recruited or how, how did you, that seems like such an unorthodox opportunity based on what you were studying in school. Yeah. Well, NASA had no need to do too much heavy recruiting. They pretty well put word out that they were going to pick some new astronauts for the first time in nine years uh, and were kind of flooded with applications. Uh, the places where they did explicit recruiting were around people of color and women, and I think that reflected their recognition that they were they were going to have to really prove themselves being credible, that uh, times were different and they were not just going to end up with another batch of military test pilots. Uh, I found out about this election through my brother because I was at graduate school in Canada where NASA, of course, doesn't advertise. Uh, but he's really the aviation crazy member of our family. He had been tracking the selection had put his own hat in the ring uh, and told me about that over vacation. And Ward, my first reaction was just what yours is. I'm an oceanographer. I'm doing the geology of the deep sea floor. You know, working in 12 to 14,000 feet of water is hard enough. You don't need to add 200 more miles to that challenge. But a few weeks later, as I thought about it some more, I looked at it in a different light. NASA was basically building a research ship that was going to go out into space instead of out to sea. Uh, and they, the role they were recruiting for called mission specialist, sort of a hybrid of, in the ocean world, what I would call chief engineer and chief scientist. So they wanted scientists and engineers that could master the, the shuttle and its systems, but also master the cargo that was being carried on every given flight and serve as the proxies, as the representatives, the agents acting on behalf of the scientists or the satellite builders who were not going to get to come along. Uh, and execute their work themselves. When I thought of it that way, I said, look, this is a career in expedition planning and management and operations. Uh, I I was good at that. I'd been going out to sea on major research cruises since my fourth year of university. I'd grown up planning flying vacations in small airplanes uh, with my family from about age 13. Uh, and I loved that, that planning and what ifing and uh, you know, fallbacks and 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 uh, adaptation adaptation plans in your hip pocket, and then setting off and pulling off a complex oceanographic cruise or even a simple family fishing vacation. I loved doing that stuff, and on top of all of it, I'd get to see the Earth with my own eyes from orbit if I managed to get selected. And how could you pass that up? You got You got to at least try. Well, I think that defines you, right? I mean, others would say, "How could you do it?" where you say, how could you pass it up? So your first mission was aboard Challenger. You and uh, David Leesma, Tom Catrio, did a spacewalk, three and a half hour spacewalk. A couple of years later, we had the Challenger disaster. Obviously, that hits you pretty hard. Yeah, that was an awful day. Um, that crew had four of my classmates in it, uh, a best friend from the next class junior to us, uh, and, of course, Greg Jarvis and Krista McAuliffe, probably the, 
the two people most known to the outside world, uh, especially Krista, because of all the, the PR surrounding um, the flight of a teacher. Uh, but yeah, it, that was just the, the human loss was devastating. You know, the, the taking care of families, trying to help get them through those first horrible days and weeks and months. Uh, and then, of course, on the professional side, you know, having to look everybody, look each other in the eyes and say, what the heck did we miss? You know, we, we just we just killed seven people. Uh, how did that happen? You know, what do we need to fix technically, culturally, organizationally? every dimension, uh, this, this needs to not happen again. It was a pretty, a very down, somber, sad, depressing, uh, many, many, many months. And of course, two and a half years before we managed to uh, get all the problems uncovered and sufficiently fixed to go back to flying again. Yeah, I was uh, the editor of the Naval Aviation Safety Magazine Approach in the late 80s, early 90s. And uh Became friends with Captain Bill Shepard, who I'm sure you know. Um, yeah. And so Shep uh, had me come down in 1990 and talk to, to John Young about the changes that had been made, both culturally and specifically, uh, in the wake of the Challenger disaster. And so that was quite uh, a, a great couple of days I had down there in Houston. And then I flew over to El Paso and, and flew the STA with Frank Culbertson, another Tomcat guy, as he was preparing for his mission. So I got a real crash course in life at NASA as an astronaut. And I'm eternally grateful to Shep for making that happen because I was wholly ignorant of what you guys do, both on campus there in Houston as you prep for a mission. That was really a, an amazing few days. Uh, so what people maybe don't realize, because in the course of your entire NASA career, you had three flights, right? And they were a number of years apart. What are the highlights of those three flights in terms of what, you know, if I ask you off the top of your head, what do you remember uh, f from each one of those? You're right. So I, in 15 years at NASA, I spent about 22 days in space. Uh, and that is something most people don't appreciate is that ratio of time and space to, to what otherwise is training and engineering work in support of the, the flight program overall. Uh, my first flight was, uh, it was a trifecta, man. It was uh, seven days duration, which was long at the time for a, a space shuttle mission, a high inclination orbit, which meant you'd get to see a lot more of the Earth below you than than if you were at 28 and a half degrees inclination, and a spacewalk. And that's think about the the particulars that we coveted of different flights. You know, fly soon, fly longer, uh, see the Earth, do a spacewalk would be you know, right up there. Um, the second flight. Uh, the highlight was the cargo itself. We deployed the Hubble Space Telescope. So we, again, we flew to a much higher orbit than the shuttle missions typically did. And we had this most extraordinary machine uh, in our care to put into orbit. And the, the, the funky highlight of that mission is Bruce McCandless and I, another Academy grad, uh, Bruce and I were the two spacewalkers on that flight. We had worked for five years on Hubble, getting all the tools and equipment that would be needed to repair it over time, getting that all designed and built and tested so it was ready to go before we even carried Hubble aloft. And then, as it turns out, the two people out of the crew that had spent the most years working on Hubble found themselves sealed up inside the airlock, inside their spacesuits, about to go out and fix a solar array when a ground engineer figured out a software command that solved the problem. So the two people that worked the most on Hubble out of that crew of five 
didn't get to see it get deployed. We were staring at the inside wall of the airlock instead of looking out the window. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Huh. I guess the thing I would say about my third flight, the, the it, science was right up my alley. It was a bunch of Earth science uh, experiments. Uh, I was the payload commander. Uh, it was a second flight with Charlie Bolden because uh, Charlie was on the Hubble crew. It was a second flight with Dave Liesma, who I'd flown with on my first flight. And, and you know, I was... My, I was up the learning curve uh, in all respects. So it was kind of the most congenial uh, all around pleasant uh, experience of the three flights. Cause you're, you know, you're senior and you're seasoned and you know, your way around uh, two good, good buddies, good colleagues who you really respect and enjoy on the crew with you uh, and a great bunch of scientific experiments to do. Kathy, you left NASA in 1993, and then you went to work for NOAA. I won't, I won't try to say that <laughs> the full, <laughs> full mouthful. You went to work for NOAA, became um, uh, the chief scientist at NOAA. Then you dabbled in uh, different private uh, experiments, and uh, worked for Ohio State for a while, back into NOAA again. And uh, talk a little bit about your transition from being an astronaut to working at NOAA and running a large government organization that has uh, you know significant oversight of part of the environment yeah so uh, a colleague of mine had been serving as NOAA chief scientist in the early 90s and needed to step down to attend to some family business so she uh, actually just a few weeks before my third flight uh, called up and asked asked me to let her put my name into play with the White House to be nominated as chief scientist and it, it was a really fascinating transition uh, that came about pretty quickly after that third flight. You know, I went directly from grad school into the astronaut corps. And, and in both cases, you're really an independent agent. I mean, you're primarily responsible for assuring your own education and development so that you can complete a PhD thesis or you're prepared to you know, fulfill your role as a mission specialist, as a spacewalker. Um, but as a civilian and in the mission specialist cadre, uh, as an astronaut, you've got really no formal control over anybody other than yourself. Nobody technically reports to you. You don't sign anybody's paycheck. You don't sign any fitness reports or evaluations. So it was a getting the astronaut corps was a crash course in how to lead as opposed to how to manage. Because as an astronaut, you had a very, a very symbolic role. You had a very visible central role. You had a lot of responsibility put in your in your hands. And in order to really be able to fulfill that responsibility, you had to be able to be an integrator and a bringer together of all the pieces and parts, uh, the, the technical bits, the different organizational elements, the different humans involved. Uh, and you had to do all that without having any real official control over anybody. Uh, shifting from there into NOAA, the, all of that stood me in really, really good stead. Uh, I, I had had some amount of leadership opportunity in a form, kind of formal sense outside of my astronaut work. I was by that point a, a Naval Reserve officer. I think I was a commander by that time. Uh, and I'd been on several presidential commissions uh, where I had some significant bit of responsibility to pull some things together but the NOAA chief scientist role was very much like the uh, astronaut office role because it does not have budget authority directly appropriated to it. So to steer and shape the research portfolio, which was about $500 million at that time, uh, to steer and shape that had to all be done you know, by force of argument, power of persuasion, 
uh, clarity clarity of strategy uh, because you were not sitting on a pile of money that you could uh, dole out as the means of shaping uh, the research portfolio. Uh, it was also a great first exposure to the the working dynamics of you know agencies and the White House and the Congress. Uh, and that, of course, stood me in tremendously good stead when I was asked to come back again uh, in 2010 as the deputy administrator and then as the administrator. Your wealth of experiences sort of makes you uniquely qualified to comment on the state of climate change. This isn't a political show. And, you know, like everything else, that that question uh, tends to get politicized. But so what where are we? with respect to climate science? Are, are, are we in extremis? Is this much ado about nothing? Are fossil fuels okay and we should just calm down? What, what, what is going on? The physics of this were worked out better part of a century ago by a Swedish scientist uh, at the time that it, you know, fossil fuel usage was predominantly wood-burning stoves. Um, so the physics are very clear and very simple and the data are really quite conclusive. Uh, we, our, our energy infrastructure, our energy ecosystem takes carbon that has been happily stored in a solid or semi-liquid state in either trees or coal or oil and vaporizes it to create energy and release the vapors and the carbon vapors go up into the atmosphere. It's a radiative gas. Um, so, are, so are bromine and methane and water vapor. So it's absolutely clear that the thumb on this scale that's making a secular change in the chemistry of the atmosphere is the fossil fuel conversion to vapor. At dead clear. Uh, the CO2 levels in our atmosphere have been getting just basic chemistry 101 measured for about 50 years now. Uh, uh, the top of Mauna Loa, where you're not getting contamination from any oddball sources, it's the free stream of the atmosphere. You see the planet breathe in the trace of those those data in the northern hemisphere. You know, flowers and greens up, carbon is sequestered, and when it goes into senescence in the winter, it comes back out. So you see the planet breathe, and you see that curve rise, and you see the slope of the curve continue to increase. Uh, the CO two levels in the atmosphere are higher now than they have been for. Uh, eight eight hundred thousand or so years, according to the best geological records we've got the rate of rise is higher than anything we can see in the geological literature. So is it much ado about nothing? Uh, look, from the planet's point of view, planet Earth is going to be just fine. You know, it's a, it's a big, massive planet, massive ocean, massive atmosphere. Uh, the planet itself will be fine. The, the question is, and the, the, the worries are, uh, the systems of water supply, food supply, uh, economic uh, viability that we have that we humans have built over centuries have all been predicated on a fairly consistent climate pattern of seasonal variability and year over year variability. Uh, that pattern is changing. The statistics are are no longer stationary. You can no longer look at the climate of the past fifty years and make a sensible interpretation of what the next fifty years are likely to be like because the atmosphere is continuing to warm. Uh, and that, again, changes the physics in very known and predictable ways, you know, at a macro level, known and predictable. At a, at a smaller regional level, what will it mean for your house or your company by what date certain? 
Uh, science is not good enough to give you that precise an answer, but it's it's very clear and it is very settled. Uh, the planet is warming. That is predominantly due to the added CO2 from human activities. Um, and it's going to move our weather and climate patterns to conditions that our our economies and our societies are very ill adapted to. Is there so, anything is there anything we can do? You know, we have the Green New Deal. We're talking about electric vehicles, uh, or is it is it just the way it's going to go based on what you mentioned? Is since we've been using fossil fuels for centuries now, there's no way to stop our finger on the scale. The intensity of our finger on the scale has been increasing. I mean, the the real first big inflection point was around 1850, the start of the industrial age. Um, it's carbon CO2 has a very long residence time in the atmosphere. So if we had a magic switch on all CO2 emissions, and right now today we flipped that switch to the off position. So starting starting right now, no more CO2 goes into the atmosphere. The CO2 that's in there now will take about a thousand years to wash out. So there's there's a lock-in factor that's been accumulating uh, since 1850 uh, uh, up to this present day that we're going to have to live through that hump, even if we could turn it all off instantly. Uh, it's, you know, we're, I, I think it's pretty clear that the, the so-called safety margin, which is the scientist's best guesstimate of uh, a, a manageable uh, degree of warming, how much is sort of maybe readily adaptable uh, by society, that's, that's like maybe two degrees Celsius. We're going to overshoot that, definitely. I heard you say the planet's going to be fine. And, and I've heard other people say that too, that in geological time, 10,000 years, 100,000 years, a million years, this will work itself out and the planet uh, writ large will be okay. It's human being, human life, and the, the lives of the animal uh, animals and plants that currently reside on the planet that will be changed markedly. Is that, did I interpret that correctly? Yeah, that's, that's essentially it. Uh, there will, there will, for as far as you can imagine, be a third rock from the sun called earth. Uh, it may, it may turn into something more like Venus or something more like Mars. It may become a very different place in terms of habitability. Uh, but there will be a, a third body in the solar system you know, 93 million miles away from the sun, cycling on a, an annual orbit, that will, that will all stay true. What is, what can live on that third rock anymore is what's, um, what's changing rapidly. So we have mentioned on the show before that, uh, there are some who've predicted that based on the rate of, uh, rising seas that the Naval Academy will be awash by the turn of the century. Um, and so there's some plans to build a seawall around the perimeter and, you know, these kinds of things as we're throwing up buildings on every free parcel of land. Um, so how soon before um, we get to the point uh, where the planet is, is, uninhabitable by human beings, right? I, I know that the first thing is, hey, your condo on the shore is gone. Then comes the plant life. Then comes the, you know, how does this unfold? That's part of what is beyond the predictable prediction capability of science. It's the, the detailed level of, of understanding and being able to model interactions between ocean, atmosphere, 
forests, land, sub- geological subsidence. You can, again, make sort of macro projections of the likely trajectory, but not get it down to, uh, I can tell you what's going to happen on th- this 50-mile stretch of the eastern shore of Maryland. Um, you know, part of what's going to, you're seeing some of it already. If you live in South Florida, uh, the, the three southernmost counties in Florida have already banded together to try to deal with uh, the, the rising sea level. It, the land is subsiding down there. Seawater, sea level is coming up, uh, and that's affecting also incursions into the their water table. So they're kind of getting flooded from three different sides. An average high tide now has floods more streets in a, in a nuisance fashion than it ever used to do. Uh, a storm surge uh, creates a greater flood zone than it used to do some years ago, uh, and they're getting saltwater intrusion into their freshwater systems. So they're they've got a triple whammy down there already. Uh, you, any of your listeners that live around Norfolk or been around Norfolk, you know, several whole neighborhoods in Norfolk that you know never to park your car uh, out on the street or in that neighborhood if you're coming anywhere near a high tide. And, and if you plot just their tide gauges, you can see the frequency and magnitude of that nuisance flooding rising over the last couple decades. Again, that's an area of the coastal zone that's sub- naturally subsiding geologically. So that's part of the factor. And then the sea level is rising is another part of the factor. Um, water supplies shifting is going to be one uh, one thing that I think will be an early warning sign, uh, an early change sign. Uh, in the ocean, you're already seeing some of those shifts. You're seeing species move. You know, fish can vote with their fins. They, they follow isotherms and, their, and the food that they need. Uh, they don't care about any of the political boundaries. So you've got you know, Maine lobsters showing up in Canadian waters. Uh, it's creating a little, just a little bit of contention. You know, Mainers used to thinking of them as their lobsters, and the lobsters just decide they're going to go be Canadian. So you know, <laughs> what, happens, what happens to that fishery, right? They're, they're, yeah. So there goes a the fishery because they wandered off. Um, you see a lot of similar changes affecting uh, some of the Alaskan fish, fish stocks. Um, so, you know, it, it's... it's Go get if you're a gardener. Go get you know, the annual map of plant growing zones. Go to somebody's archive and look back 50 or 60 years. You can see the the, the plant growing zones marching further and further north uh, as the seasonal temperatures will slowly increase. So uh, it it it's the proverbial frog in the pot of cold water. Though it's it's happening. It's it's clearly happening. The data are clear. The science is very solid. Uh, but it's manifesting itself in slow enough ways and bits and pieces that it's very uh, the hardest kind of threat for human beings to recognize and respond to are these sort of slow creeping threats. So you've also had a renaissance career in terms of you've been an astronaut. Um, you were the head of an agency. Um, you've, you've been a political appointee. It gives you, again, a unique a series of experiences that allow you to have thoughts about the state of the political discourse. And again, I'm not asking you to pick a side, but just wondering, how do we get out of this impasse? What, what, what's your sense of where we're headed in terms of problem solving and doing what the Congress is supposed to do or the different separation of powers and all the other stuff the framers intended what what what, how's your temperature on all of that uh it's seriously off in the worry zone 
um, pretty well off scale high in the worry zone. Uh, yeah, I had my first political appointment in 1984. Uh, I've, I've held a presidential level appointment under every president since Reagan, which ends up meaning more R's than D's. Uh, and I've, you know, I, I just, I'm horrified by wh- where we've come to. There is not a center anymore, but we've become so splintered and so tribal. And one of the things that worries me probably most of all, and I don't have any answer to this, of course, is the degree to which we totally seem to have lost any sense of of shared truth or shared value. I mean, my all of my appointments, uh, federal appointments, have been scientific ones, and they start back in 1984. And the the ethos then, I think, it was beginning to fray a little bit. But I joined the cadre of scientists and and technologists that administrations of all stripes turn to because you knew the science, you knew the physics. You could you you would be an advisor that would give federal decision makers the best information possible based on the science, the engineering, the data. And and there was not a presumption that your registered party affiliation mattered in these jobs. There, there was a confidence that it didn't matter, that you were serving the country and bringing in the best scientific data as one part of what is always a complex decision. Now it's you know, if you're a registered Republican, uh, the other side won't want to uh, appoint you to anything. It's, you, there's not sufficient party loyalty. Uh, there's the presumption that you're cooking the books or slanting the science uh, to fit the political desires of whoever appointed you. And it's this, this, pres- this presumption of favoritism and the presumption of partisanship, the presumption of distrust. Uh, uh, of scientists and science and technology, but more broadly of each other, uh, it's just really, really worrisome to me. How do how do you ever come together to come to a solution to, uh, to a difficult problem if the other guy is always all caps the other guy, the bad guy, and your you know your own group will castigate you for even talking to him or her, for for having lunch with him or her. So this, you know, this hyper loyalty, hyper partisanship, and loss of common trust and common truth uh, does not it does not bode well for a democracy. Yeah, the the common truth piece, like you've mentioned, we can't even decide what the facts are, and uh, you know, all of us on this conversation come from a, a culture where facts are not fungible. You know, I mean, gear speed on the F-14 was 250 knots. If you drop the gear at 300 knots, you're going to cause a total hydraulic failure. Same rules applied to all the other things that you had to do getting into and out of space. You know, those were facts. Um, Never mind what the discussion would be. It would always be productive based on a shared set of facts. And we can't even agree on what is true. And so, yes, it's hyperpartisan and and that's that's not going to go away. But I think as a society, until we can get back to the idea that there are a ground set of truths uh, that were really, as you've said, in, in, a, in some extremis. I think this just gets to the what many have called the death of expertise, right? You know, this sense that, uh, well, you know, my, my opinion of what's happening is just as important as your opinion, whether it's based on fact or not. And I was curious, uh, Dr. Sullivan, what you're hearing from your former colleagues who work in NOAA, especially the scientists who work in NOAA, what's the 
morale like there? And and what's the feeling about you know being a scientist, being an expert, and working for the federal government? The morale is is low everywhere that I've probed in the the science and, and tech agencies for a lot of a whole host of reasons. One, of course, is you've got scientists in the federal government who chose public service over other avenues of applying their trade as a scientist because in large part and mostly because they care to bring that expertise and information to bear to help steer the nation forward. They're not, most of them not claiming that science is the all and everything and completely determines an answer, but, you know, let's, let's at least have the best most solid data and information possible to help constrain and guide our decisions. Uh, and suddenly, the, to suddenly get the feeling that none of your expertise is respected or trusted, uh, wh- why are you there? Um, just th- that's very, very, very demoralizing. The loss of expertise, I always test this in my own thinking in, think, in imagining a criminal justice setting. I mean, a, a jury hears evidence in a trial, and and the evidence, some of the evidence may certainly be flawed, but you know the notion, the ideal is you bring the the best, most solid evidence possible, and and think through what that means, and then apply the law to it. Now, if we now don't think there's any such thing as evidence, it's just my word or your word. Uh, so is it now is it now what is it? It's is it who paid off the jury or is it uh, the political affiliation of the judge or the defendant? I mean, where, where do you, where do you go uh, if you've given up on there being any such thing as you know? But this is the evidence on which we will base our decision. It's the best evidence we've got. Uh, the climate climate change science is exactly that same thing to me. It is, it is not completely perfect information. It is very solid science. Its implications and its broad projections are very reliable. They're very actionable. Uh, it relies on the same physics that we use in our weather forecasts to you know, go fly airplanes and do everything else. It, it's the best foundation of knowledge we've got, and it should be informing our decisions about how to steer this country forward. And if in, instead it's just tossed out because the guy who did it was a Republican or the guy who did it was a Democrat. You know, there's there's not a Democratic versus a Republican answer to two plus two is four. Gear speeds on the airplane or, you know, orbital velocity of a space shuttle, uh, those 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 just are not partisan items. They're they're well known and they're and they're actionable. You rely on that gear speed warning flag and warning speed and you know what orbital velocity is. Um, so it's I don't, I don't know where you go as, as a cohesive society, number one, uh, much less as a complex society in a, tw- in, a, in a technological era that we're in. I don't know how you keep things moving productively forward if you've given all that up. I, th- I think some of the answer to that uh, is the fish thing you were talking about. You know, the fish get a vote. I think there's a natural order to things, even when humans are dealing with each other. Um, you know, if you keep cutting off your nose to spite your face, at some point, you know, you'll hit bone. I think some of that is going on. It takes, there's no telling how long it takes for that circle to close. But that's 
uh, that's sort of what what I, I I have to believe is true at some level. What are you hearing from your former colleagues at NASA about their morale around SpaceX? And I know Boeing has a parallel; they haven't launched yet. But uh, is that re-energizing the grid? Are we back to to greatness? Because I'll tell you, I watched those launches, and it kind of made me feel like I felt when I was watching, you know, Gemini as an eight-year-old boy. Yeah, and I think the climate around NASA is generally happy and supportive uh, about the the SpaceX and Blue Origin and, and Boeing efforts. Uh, everyone, I think, felt good that we finally regained the sovereign capability to launch American astronauts from American soil. Um, I think, you know, I mean, NASA is a complex organization as well. It's got an aeronautics group. It's got um, remote sensing groups. It's got planetary science groups. Uh, they don't all feel the same. Uh, kind of boost when there's a big success in human spaceflight. I think there's a, a broad pride about being part of the space program, but yeah, the budget pressures are different across those uh, different arenas. Uh, the current administration has, I think in every budget that they, that the white house has submitted, uh, they've tried to dramatically slash uh, NASA's research investments in particular, their earth remote sensing investments. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of happiness and, and hopefulness that the Space Council has been revitalized and it seems to have significant uh, vice presidential attention. Uh, you got the big announcement about Artemis and Back to the Moon in 2024. Uh, that always jazzes everybody up, but most people in NASA, the old hands at least, uh, we've, you know, we've seen those press releases before. We've seen the great White House events before. Uh, I've seen, I think I've seen the movie at least five times. Uh, and the problem is it, it takes more than a single presidential term to pull off something like that. Uh, it takes consistent investment uh, and dedicated and focused effort. Uh, it takes grit and perseverance. Uh, and usually all too often it's been the easy part of the press release and the, the fanfare and the cool artist renderings and then not backed up by action in the Congress or support in the Congress uh, and not sustained over the you know, four, eight, ten years that it may take to do it. It gets whipsawed around, the, around elections. What's keeping you busy these days? We know you've retired from NOAA, you've retired from NASA. Uh, so what are you doing? What are you spending most of your time on these days? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm involved in a fair bit of board work uh, nowadays, a couple of companies and several uh, national nonprofits, uh, and stemming from the Challenger deep dive that I did with Victor Vescovo, I've got two education outreach projects underway, one with ESRI, the Geographic Information System guys. We're producing a set of story maps to help sort of bring people's awareness and knowledge of the oceans up to a higher level uh, by telling the Caladan Oceanic story and Victor's story. Uh, and then another one with uh, the science museum that I ran here in Columbus and Monterey Bay Aquarium. Uh, there's an outfit called Marine Advanced Technology Education, MATE. And every year they run an, a design competition aimed at middle school and high school grades. So the 2021 MATE ROV, Remotely Operated Vehicle Challenge, uh, is one that we're going to put together again based on the Caledon Oceanic uh, and Marianas Trench Dives. So both of those are in work. We wish you uh, all the best of luck and success with those efforts. Uh, Dr. Kathy Sullivan, the most 
vertical person in the history of uh, humanity from the bottom of the Challenger Deep uh, up into uh, space three or 400 miles into uh, orbit. Uh, also, former director of NOAA and a retired Navy captain. It's been great having you on the show. I'm uh, really uh, honored to talk to you today. My pleasure. Thanks so much, guys. All right. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Uh, join us again next week. We've got a couple of uh, Coast Guard uh, officers to uh, be on the show to talk about their prize-winning essays in the uh, Naval Institute Coast Guard Essay Contest this year. Uh, and until then, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. <laughs>